O Lord, fill these empty words of mine with a life that only comes from your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I remember as a child, I had a very strong conscience and somewhat of a, a firm, but yet naive, I was just a child, but, but a firm idea of what right and wrong was, or at least in my mind. As was common with, with this age, about 10 years old or so, like many other children, I would often have sleepovers. I would invite my friends over. They would spend the night, would have a great time, and they would go on their way the next day. One particular sleepover, when I had friends come over, as the evening grew late and it became dark outside, one of my friends wanted to go in the basement and tell ghost stories. There's always something creepy about darkness and basements that just seems so right for ghost stories. Well, with a hypersensitive conscience and probably a bit of fear of what's going to come with the ghost stories, I forbade it thinking this to be the most terrible of sins. And then one of my friends said something very interesting to me. He said, well, so what? You can always ask for forgiveness afterwards. <laughs> well then, I use this rather juvenile story to, to introduce a concept that I think we all carry around with us, but often fail to give voice to this question of what we do with our newfound forgiveness and freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Isn't there forgiveness? Isn't there freedom? What is the extent of that forgiveness? And what license does it give to us today? This question would also have been a question that the Christians in Corinth, who Paul writes to in our second lesson, would have very well been asking. This city of Corinth, where these Christians live in our second lesson, the city of Corinth was notoriously known for its freedom, so much so that they believed themselves to, to be free from the constraints of conventional morality. There was plenty of religion at Corinth, of course, even Christianity, but the prevailing belief was that the soul was eternal, good and perfect. And then the body, the, the physical, the tangible, was temporal, bad, and corrupted. This, for, for those of you who have studied philosophy, this is like a form of Platonic dualism. What followed from this, this thinking was, was that religion and whatever relationship you had with your god or gods only involved your soul. Because, of course, spirituality is something that goes on for eternity. And only your soul will live and exist to eternity. Your body and the material world had nothing to do with religion or spirituality. Since it's temporal, your body's going to die. It's corruptible. It's going to go away. So because they had this in their view, what you do with the material... What you do with your physical body had absolutely no impact on religion or your relationship with God. You are free to do whatever you want with the material and use your body in whatever way you like. But then St. Paul comes to town talking about this thing called sin and how that hurts your relationship with God. 
But that's not all that he talks about, you see. He also introduces this concept about forgiveness from that sin, which results in freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, put yourself in the shoes of these Corinthian Christians young in their faith. Because we are forgiven, we have freedom in Christ. Now, they knew a thing or two about freedom in their former life. They liked this idea of freedom. You've heard the phrase, old habits are hard to break. But what seems to be the context here for these Corinthian Christians, young in their faith, is a misunderstanding of that forgiveness that they have in Jesus Christ, and thereby a misapplication of the freedom that results from it. Their understanding of their forgiveness of sins seemed to actually have reinforced their previous notions of absolute freedom. All things are lawful for, for me, Paul characterizes them in our first verse from 1 Corinthians. An even better translation for that is, is all things are permissible for me. They still thought that the material body had nothing to do with salvation. And even if it did, so what? We have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You have a license to do anything. As one poet writes, free from the law, oh happy condition. I can sin as I please and still have remission. It's the best of both worlds, right? You can go on sinning and still be saved, or so they thought. This, of course, is a misunderstanding of sin, a misunderstanding of material reality and what God plans to do with it, especially your bodies, and above all, a misunderstanding of forgiveness and a misunderstanding of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. In essence, these Corinthian Christians didn't know anything more about their faith than 10-year-old boys telling ghost stories in basements. You can always ask for forgiveness afterwards. The sad reality is that some things never change, and there are many well-intending Christians even today who still misunderstand these fundamental things. So what do we find St. Paul doing to address this problem? Well, first, it might be interesting to note what he actually didn't do. These Christians are clearly in serious error. But notice that Paul does not come down to the, on them, at least here, with intimidating threats of discipline, like a strict school teacher in order to enforce a moral behavior. No. While he is firm in his response, he's actually quite gentle, isn't he? Neither does Paul launch into this lengthy, heady, philosophical argument about freedom and forgiveness. What he writes in response to them ultimately relates to freedom and forgiveness. But his primary focus really is on a different subject. It's quite clear that in the 8 to 10 verses, short verses, that we have to focus upon this morning, St. Paul's response to this alarming problem that threatens the existence of the church focuses on something far more fundamental than this problem or that problem. He focuses on the relationship that each and every believer has with Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul leads us to believe 
that if we misunderstand our relationship with Jesus Christ, like these Corinthian Christians, the substance of our faith and actions will ultimately be misguided at best and condemnable at worst. But when we understand our relationship with Jesus Christ, proper faith and action will spring out of that fundamental belief. Just look at what St. Paul, how St. Paul responds to these Corinthian Christians. Halfway through verse 13, he writes, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And by the way, when, when Paul writes about the body, the Greek word soma, so many times throughout this short passage, he doesn't just mean the physical and tangible corpse that, that we have, the physical body. He means our entire being. So keep that in mind throughout this passage. But moving on, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This relationship. Verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 19. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Do you notice a common theme here? Ultimately, the answer to what we do with our newfound forgiveness and freedom is best understood in our relationship with the one who gave us that freedom and forgiveness in the first place, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Paul writes here, Jesus loves you so very much that he bound himself so closely and so intimately with you that Paul calls us members of his body. Elsewhere, Paul flat out calls us the Lord's body itself. We have an idea of this closeness and the analogy of marriage that St. Paul clearly has in mind as the backdrop of this passage and that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, becoming one flesh. But this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is so intimate and so profound that it far surpasses the union of bodies that comes from marriage. We are not just members of Christ's body, but our body, our very selves, has been transformed into a shrine dedicated to God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We then have become one spirit with Christ, as Paul writes in verse 17. Your forgiveness, your freedom are both understood in this relationship between you and God. Forgiveness liberates you from the power of sin that separates you from God, and our freedom is the ability to relate to God how he always intended with this barrier of sin now removed. Because you are redeemed, because you are forgiven, you have freedom to be who you truly are, fully human, a person made in the image of God, relating to him in profound, loving, and intimate ways. How we understand this fundamental relationship with Jesus Christ will ultimately and necessarily impact everything we think and everything we do. This, our friends, I, I suggest begins with how we think about ourselves and what we do with ourselves. It's worth asking, what do you think about yourself? Many people today in our culture 
think of themselves as a failure, worthless, inadequate. But I bet that's not what the Savior of the world who loves you and gave his life for you thinks about you. How do you treat yourself? Do you run yourself ragged at work? Do you overeat? Do you abuse alcohol, use excess tobacco or other substances? Friends, that's not recognizing the holiness of what's inside of you. You are a member of Christ's body. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are loved. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we can even fathom half of what that really means. And what should that do about our daily living? Well, for starters, I would suggest that the care and reverence that we give to this physical sanctuary as good, important, and proper as that is, should actually be overshadowed by the care and reverence we give to ourselves. Why? Not because of an overinflated ego or exaggerated sense of self-worth, self-importance, but because Christ has bound himself to you in love and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that, friends. If you ever need a boost to your self-esteem, just listen. Listen to what the creator of the universe says of you in the pages of Scripture. I think the care and reverence that we give to ourselves because of that should far outweigh the care and reverence we give to this place. But let's be sure that we're all on the very same page here. Let's make this crystal clear. By care and reverence, giving to ourselves, I'm not advocating that after the service we raid bath and body works or go to a spa to pamper ourselves. That's not the care and reverence that I'm talking about here. We should care about our physical bodies and be healthy and make healthy choices. But ultimately, I'm talking about recognizing the sober reality of your union with Christ through the Holy Spirit's presence in you. There are things that can desecrate a physical temple. Just read the Old Testament. There are also things that can desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you are that temple, friends. As we move on to the end of our passage, perhaps Paul becomes most firm as he closes our short section here. He writes in verse 20, You are bought with a price, so glorify God and your body. This, of course, in this culture evokes a marketplace imagery where a slave would be purchased from the former slave master. But that slave still has a responsibility to his new master. But what's profound here, friends, is that anyone who knows anything about the Hebrew scriptures would be struck most about this idea of ownership. Why? Well, the one God who has created everything that is already owns everything. That's a fundamental belief that comes out of the Old Testament. And then we read that we have, on top of that, been bought with a price. Christ's redeeming death on our behalf, no doubt. Friends, when it comes down to it, God has double ownership of us. He owns us first from creating us. But after we rebelled against him and ran away, he graciously bought us back on the cross. 
But God's purchase of us, his ownership of us, friends, is actually meant for our good. It's meant for our liberation. It's so that we can find life in loving our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the boundless extent of his forgiveness for us and the purpose of our freedom in him. Now, we all should be encouraged and moved to worship as we think about our relationship that each one of us has with our Savior, Jesus Christ. But I'm afraid that we've only gone halfway if we left it there. You see, there are two sides of this coin, and we've only examined one so far. The other side of that coin is this, friends. Just as the majestic presence of the Holy Spirit resides in you, so it also resides in your brother and your sister and your neighbor. And the same reverence and care that you give to yourself must also be given to them because they too are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is what you think of other members in the church and how you treat them fitting of the sobering reality. So we come to find, friends, that that this freedom that we have in Christ not only liberates us from the power of sin to love God with our all, but it also liberates us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, back to that 10-year-old boy. Was he right in resisting ghost stories on that dark evening in his basement? I suppose it depends on what God thinks about ghost stories. But that really misses the entire point of these last 15 minutes, doesn't it? True freedom is not obedience under the threat of punishment. True freedom is the ability that we have in Jesus Christ to love our neighbor as ourself and to give our lives back to God, who alone is our light, our life, and our joy. Amen.